You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. on Colossians. All right, let's start there. As we pick up in this morning's passage, Paul has expressed to the church in Colossae that his prayers for them are always filled with both gratitude and intercession. Gratitude to God, having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Blessings flowing from the Father poured out on his beloved children. Verse three, the strength and grace of God to trust in Jesus and to love his people. The work of the Spirit, verse 8, in the hearts of the saints. Faith and love, Paul says, motivated by heavenly-minded hope, verse 5. The hope laid up for us in heaven, the fountain from which faith and love flow. The gospel, not only the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, yes and amen to that, but two, the good news of the real, objective, future promises of God that await the children of God. The Colossians, having heard and received that good news from Epaphras, along with so many others in the days of the early church, the gospel having spread from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, Italy, and Greece, and likely even into uh, Persia, Egypt, and North Africa. Paul's words affirming that Epaphras didn't bring to the Colossians a false or incomplete gospel, but rather the same gospel having increased throughout the known world that they might be confident in the message that they had heard as opposed to those seeking to mislead them. The good news, verse six, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, never to be abandoned no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their hollow words and their empty promises. Something for which Paul never ceases to pray in his words of intercession, paired with his words of gratitude for the Colossian church, having heard of their faith and love, never ceasing to pray that they might experience these things in increased measure. Verse nine, a deep and lasting understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, the fullness of his creative and redemptive work, the lordship of Christ in creation and redemption. And with the lordship of Christ, the implication for our very lives is those redeemed by his blood, rescued into his kingdom. A knowledge which is no mere intellectual exercise, but a knowledge consisting of spirit-imparted wisdom and understanding, verse 10, which works itself out in Christ-honoring obedience. And with such knowledge, verse 11, the strength to patiently endure, No matter how dark the night of the soul, no matter how big the wave of circumstance, strength that only God can supply. Joyfully, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father for all that he has done, all that he is doing, all that he will do for us in Christ Jesus. Having qualified us, verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints. Having delivered us from the domain of darkness, verse 13, transferred us to the kingdom of light and life, Jesus' good kingdom. Having redeemed and forgiven us, verse 14, set free from the shackles of sin, our pardon secured by the blood of Jesus. The first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the 
Colossian church an invitation to behold the goodness, glory, and grace of God in Jesus Christ. That invitation to behold carrying us right into this morning's passage, what many have come to refer to as the Colossian hymn of Christ. As Paul sings of the excellencies of the Lord Jesus. Just to kind of frame this out before we even get into the first verse of this morning's passage. As you heard me pray, all of the Bible provides us with a steady diet for our joy and the glory of God from Genesis to Revelation. And yet there are certain passages that feel more like Thanksgiving dinner than a a standard Wednesday lunch. And this morning's passage would be one of those. And as one preparing a sermon with that in mind, in one sense, I felt this sort of tension pulling both ways. At times, preparing this passage thinking, this is going to be too much. This is too heavy. And at other times, feeling incredibly inadequate to have barely touched on these these excellencies of Jesus Christ. Reminded all the while that even with the, the most glorious of Thanksgiving feasts in front of us, we only have so much capacity for each and every meal. Again, going back to Paul's words in verses 9 through 14, this is why we must be continually filled with increased measure of an understanding and knowledge of who God is in Jesus Christ, always and forever growing in these things. And so I'll just go ahead and tell you, if you're understanding this passage rightly, as you walk away from this place this morning, you should feel two things at once. You should feel like you just sat in front of a fire hydrant with respect to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, his excellencies. And you should feel like we took a a, a thumbnail and barely scratched at these things at the same time. So with that in mind, verse 15, we pick up Paul's logic, his argument. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, The lyrics of this glorious hymn begin with the supremacy and lordship of Christ over all of creation, much like the way the book of Hebrews begins. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus is, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The author of Hebrews, in different words, proclaiming Jesus to be the image of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, just as Paul does with the first few stanzas of this glorious song. He's the image of the invisible God. Let let the magnitude of those words rest on you. The invisible God made visible. Paul here speaking of something far greater than the the image-bearing language that you read of in the creation story. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has made him known. Or how about 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Here it is, who is the image of God. 
the invisible God made visible, made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God's character made known. God's attributes made known. God's glory, his goodness, his grace made known. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Paul says. Not not meaning that Jesus is the first being in a sequence of created beings, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses would proclaim to believe, a form of Christological heresies in the days of the early church known as Arianism, a denial of the deity of Christ and declaring that Jesus was the, the first and greatest of created beings. No, Paul's language here is not the language of sequence, but rather the language of rank or position or status. So that some translations, perhaps yours in front of you, says the the firstborn, not of all creation, but over all creation. Which too is a, a perfectly good translation of the original Greek. The word firstborn used in a way... Uh, that you see similarly described of King David in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 89, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In Greco-Roman culture, firstborn being a legal term, used to refer to the primary heir entitled to one's father's inheritance. Again, that passage in the first chapter of Hebrews capturing something of the imagery. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Here it is, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The greater David, crowned with glory, the highest of the kings of the earth, the king of kings. The invisible God made visible, sovereign and supreme in rule and reign over all of creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of or over all creation. On what basis can Paul declare such things, some might ask? Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul here declaring Jesus the agent of the created order, the one by whom and through whom all things were made. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the apostle John says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. This is Jesus he's describing. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word through whom all of creation was spoken into existence. The firstborn, sovereign, and supreme in rule and reign over all of creation. Because all of creation was made by him and through him. Notice Paul's language of all-encompassing totality here. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, galaxies and solar systems, black holes and supernovas, sun, moon, and stars, mountains, valleys, rivers, and streams, creatures of all shapes and sizes, dust particles, mustard seeds, You and I made in his image. 
the unseen spiritual realm with angels and all other heavenly beings. Thrones, Paul says, dominions, rulers, authorities, earthly and heavenly. All of these things, you and I included, owing their existence to the creative agency of God's beloved son. And yet Paul doesn't stop there, declaring Jesus not only to be the agent of all creation, but to the aim of all of creation. All things created through him and for him, Paul says. The purpose of the created order to bring him honor and glory. I love the way Sam Storm says it in his commentary on this passage. He says, whatever is, is that he might be glorified and praised and enjoyed forever. He is the reason the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, how many synonyms can he offer? The purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves. Does that make your head spin? More than that, does it make your heart happy? Paul goes on in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things, a phrase open to two possible interpretations, perhaps intentional on the part of the Apostle Paul, as, as both communicate something of the glory of Jesus Christ. Perhaps meaning his pre-existence before the foundations of the world. Perhaps meaning his preeminence above all things, similar to that language of the firstborn over all creation. Sovereign, supreme, and rule, and reign. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And not just sovereign over our human existence. That's far too small. Sovereign over and governing all of the created order, Paul says. And in him, all things hold together. Again, coming back to that passage in Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And here it is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Jesus Christ keeps the cosmos from collapsing. As he too keeps you and I breathing. Our lives ultimately in his hands, as is the entirety of creation. Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances on the, in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun and the heavens that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. That the creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. That he upholds the entirety of the created order, Jesus does, by the word of his power, governing all that he sustains toward a full and final consummation for his glory. The supremacy and lordship of Christ over all of creation. Glory of glories packed into these first few brief verses. 
meant to stir our minds and hearts to, to worship this Lord over all creation, worthy of our adoration and allegiance. Captured eloquently as best maybe we can in places like Psalm chapter 95, verses three through seven. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, here's the response, let us worship and bow down. There you get the language of adoration and allegiance. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The first few verses of this morning's passage declaring the supremacy and lordship of Christ over all of creation that we might worship and bow down before creation's king. But lest we think that Jesus is Lord over creation alone, Paul goes on to declare the lordship of Christ too in his great work of redemption. Look at verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Right, many of us are familiar with the imagery of the church as a body with its many members. Paul describes in detail in writing to the church in Corinth, here declaring Jesus to be the head of the body, teaching us a couple of things, really. The risen Christ exercises lordship over the church, seated above all rule and authority and dominion in the church. But two, with his authority, our source of sustenance which is too how Paul speaks of Christ, the head of the body. In fact, you don't have to go any further than the very next chapter of the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 19, where Paul says, holding fast to the head, that is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That it's Jesus from whom we, the church, derive our life, our nourishment, our growth, as we hold fast to him, the head of the body, sovereign Lord of the redeemed. He is the beginning, Paul says, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not only the creator and sustainer of the universe, sovereign and supreme in his rule and reign over all creation, but two, to use the language of one scholar, the beginning and founder of a new humanity, a new people, by virtue of his having been the first to rise, never to die again. The language of resurrection. Not only Lord and head over creation, but Lord and head over the new creation. The first fruits of the resurrection and inheritance that await us, his redeemed. The risen king crowned with glory, preeminent, Paul says, in all things. Having the first place, surpassing all others. Lord of the created order, Head of the church. As the body and bride has sung for the last several hundred years, and rightly so, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Not only king of creation, but to Lord of the church. Again, on, on what basis, some might ask? Verse 19, for, 
For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As Paul will go on to say, chapter two, verse nine, the whole fullness of deity dwelling bodily. That language hearkening back to the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord that filled the tabernacle and temple. Jesus described as the fullness of God, the eternal God who without ceasing to be God became flesh, that his body might someday be broken, that his blood might someday be poured out. That through him, Paul says, God might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things, whether on earth or in heaven. Similar to the language Paul uses in verse 16. Paul here speaking of the, the redemptive work of Christ in a cosmic sense. As he understands that the entirety of creation has suffered the effects of the fall. That's why Paul speaks in places like Romans 8 in this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that, he, listen to this, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul isn't arguing for the reconciling of all things to God in a, a universalistic sense. Universalism like the Arian heresy, a, a heresy of its own. Jesus clearly warns, as does the Apostle Paul elsewhere, about the judgment to come. Rather, Paul is arguing for the reconciling of the created order. Lest anyone think that Jesus' blood has accomplished less than what it truly has accomplished. As we'll sing about just a couple of months from now. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Peace and reconciliation rippling through the cosmos. Far as the curse is found. In the words of one pastor and scholar, it has pleased God the Father not merely to make the old creation through the power of his Son, but also to make, i.e. to reconcile a new creation by the death of his Son. Paul goes on in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul here magnifying the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ in the most personal and intimate of ways. Hear these words. And you. And you. That what Jesus' blood has secured is as vast as the cosmos, Romans 8. And at the same time, it's as intimate as God and a single sinner reconciled. Once alienated, Paul says, 
cut off, estranged from God, once hostile in mind, not only estranged from God, but at enmity with God, once doing evil deeds, flowing from an evil heart, the children of wrath that we once were, Ephesians 2. Now reconciled in Jesus' body of flesh by his death, Paul says, from the Father's face, a light of reconcilement shining toward you and toward me. Friendship with the living God, intimacy with the living God, peace with the living God, where there was once only alienation and hostility. But for the grace of God, but for the blood of Christ, Speaking of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the same time, here it is, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's bad news. But, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, rescued in, given a hope, adopted off the streets, given a name, brought near by Jesus' blood. To what end, some might ask? Paul goes on in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. It's the same language used in the Old Testament to describe the animals without blemish sacrificed to the Lord by the Levitical priests. Here used to describe those having been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Someday to be presented before the Father, holy and blameless, like a lamb without blemish or spot, Because of the true lamb, Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is credited to sinners like you and me by faith. It's too much. Paul goes on in verse 23. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, Paul here affirming to the Colossian believers that Epaphras didn't bring to Colossae a false or incomplete gospel, but rather the same gospel having increased throughout the known world. That they might be confident in the message that they had heard as opposed to those seeking to delude them. That which they had heard and understood, verse 6, the grace of God in truth, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ. Never to be abandoned. Again, no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their hollow words, with their empty promises, Paul here making a, a similar argument to that made by the author of the book of Hebrews Declaring the Christian life to be no life of easy believism, which has sadly crept into the church in our day, particularly in the American South. One commentator of the book of Hebrews, Karen Jobes, says it this way. The author of Hebrews, both God himself as the ultimate author and the human author, whoever that may be, 
They want Christians to be warned in terms that do not permit either an easy legalism or a cheap grace. Believers are called to nothing less than living with eyes fixed on Christ from conversion to death. To make a decision for Christ means to adopt an ongoing stance of faith throughout one's life, not just for a momentary utterance. Nothing less than eyes fixed on Christ from conversion to death. It seems to line up pretty well with what Paul brings into view here, doesn't it? An overwhelming display of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we might keep fixing our gaze on him. In the words of one scholar, Paul understood that when Jesus consumes our focus, everything else is put into its proper perspective. So that I would ask, is is this the Jesus you've come to know and trust? Is this the gospel you've come to embrace? If not, perhaps today is the day of salvation for somebody in this gathering. The day to repent of your sins, to put your trust in Jesus. The only one in whom we might find forgiveness, the only worthy Savior and King. Preeminent over all things. And for we who profess to know, love, and follow Jesus. You know, there there are authors throughout church history... And they seem to capture the Christian life in a unique way, each and every one of them. So that for C.S. Lewis, it was giving us this, this imagery of the Christian life being one of joy and of us being enemies of our own joy when we go against the grain of these things that we've been talking about this morning. And as Lewis describes it, he gives the picture of us making mud pies in a slum when a holiday at sea has been offered to us. John Bunyan paints a picture of a journey toward a celestial city and all of the dangers that await, but the joys and beauties that are on the other side of that river. For G.K. Chesterton, it was painting a picture of a God who doesn't grow weary like we do. As children in their younger years are known to say to their parents, do it again, mommy, do it again, daddy until we get tired of doing whatever that thing is that they've asked us to do that entertains them and amuses them. Chesterton says, God does that every morning with a sunrise and every night with a sunset and every time he creates the next daffodil or daisy. He never grows bored. He never grows weary, giving us some indication of what childlikeness is and wonder. Mine is that moment on the beach about four years ago, which some of you have heard like a a dead horse beaten. But some of you haven't. And every time I share it, someone seems to be pricked at the heart by this this imagery. And so I'm going to share it again because it seems appropriate in the, the framework and context of Colossians 1. Our daughters, they were three and four years old. This would have been a few years back now. We were on vacation at the beach We've been known to, to do from time to time, and it's about midweek, evening, not a lot to do at this particular beach, so we decided to go for a walk as the sun was going down, and maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes in, all of a sudden my oldest daughter, Lanier, four years old at the time, yells out at the top of her lungs so that everybody within 200 yards could hear her, Daddy, it's the moon. Look, Daddy, the moon, do you see it? 
realized this kid had never seen the moon in real life. Makes sense. She had a bedtime of like 7 o'clock up to that point. She'd seen it on screens, in books. It's the first time she'd ever seen it, hanging in the cosmos, like stage lighting for this divine, redemptive, historical drama that we're a part of. And she was enamored, enthralled. It was a really cool moment for me to be reminded of the glory of God, the ways he's revealed himself in creation. But it was the, the next day that was both haunting and awakening for me. Because we went out and we did the same thing the very next evening. Walked on that very same beach. A few minutes into the walk, my daughter looked up at that very same moon. And in the very same way, she shouted at the top of her lungs, Daddy, look, it's the moon. It's the moon. I'm like, yeah, I know. We did that yesterday. My daughter looked at me without saying it because she didn't have these words yet in her vocabulary as if to say, it's a new day. That's the Christian life. If I ever wrote a book, that'd be my mud pies in the slums versus a holiday at sea illustration. That's it. That's what Paul's trying to, to get into us. That the Christian life is a life of beholding and that by way of our beholding, we become Conform to the image of God's Son. Have you beheld and are you continuing to behold? In a moment, have an opportunity to worship this Jesus. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's stupefied silence. Having been fit, hit by the fire hydrant of who... Jesus Christ is and what he has done, what, what he is doing, what he will do for us in his great work of redemption. And along with that, his work of creation and holding all things together, preeminent king over the created order. Perhaps it's running to the Lord with those prayers of Paul from last week. Would you give me increased capacity, Lord? Would you increase my appetite to take these things in? Whatever it is, we want to give you a couple of minutes to sit with the so what of this morning's passage before we jump into our song together. So as James comes up, he'll give us some space to do that. And then we'll move into these last few songs. And, and this is our opportunity going back to Psalm chapter 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We get to bring our collective song before this great God, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ. There will also be an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to do so, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. If you want to talk about Jesus in that regard, I would love to connect with you toward the end of this service, in the weeks to come. If you are a Christian, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations at my left and right up here. There's a gluten-free station in that back corner. There are cups in that back corner. As I've said for weeks now, you can't miss communion no matter what direction you travel in this auditorium. As you prepare to 
receive the elements this morning, consider the wonder of what Christ has accomplished in making peace by the blood of his cross. Like dual engine jets, as you, as you think on and sit with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, consider the Romans 8 uh, rippling of reconciliation as far as the curse is found. Cosmic reconciliation. And with that, the intimacy of the beauty of the phrase, and you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.